I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify and Starship Sofa, Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 164. I'm your host, Nicola seaton Clark. And this week we present Teen Angst and Magical Realism in the form of The Centaur's Daughter by Bonnie Jo Stufflebeam. Bonnie Jo's fiction and poetry has appeared in more than 40 magazines and anthologies, such as Clark's World, Lightspeed and Interzone. Her novelette, The Orangery, was a finalist for the 2016 Nebula Award, and in 2015 she released the collaborative fiction jazz album Strange Monsters. You can visit her on Twitter or through her website, links to which are in our show notes. Her story is read for us today by Maureen McLean, an Austin, Texas musician who plucks the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life amazing tales from Spanish to English. And now, The Centaur's Daughter. As a little girl, I never understood my father's night self. It's hard to be a kid whose father is two people. He changed every day with the sky. I cried at sunrise. I had trouble sleeping. Still do. And I've had seventeen years to process my father's differences. When I was small enough that my hands didn't fit around a soda bottle, I couldn't be left alone. The babysitter would coach me from the safety of my closet with chocolate granola surprise shakes and a broom guitar upon which she sang classic Elvis. Despite myself, I always laughed. I loved that babysitter. But babysitters don't follow you into high school. Now, when I think of her... I see the woman who, once I was old enough to understand, told me that my father was a monster, warned me that I had his blood, that even though I would never look half-horse like him, I could still develop the night terrors, the confusion. 
You better be careful, Ruby. It runs in families, you know, she said. I didn't know. I was twelve and too old for a babysitter, and suddenly I understood that some of the things I had loved as a child, some people, would not carry over into the grown-up world. I'm sorry, what was the question? I asked. My therapist's name is Miss Flowers, the kind of name that makes me want to puke. Every time I see her, she has a new flower pinned in her hair. Today, it's a dandelion, which I think is technically a weed. Her office has gray walls with bird shadows painted on them. A lamp in the corner sends out a single ray of light that casts the room in contours. I asked if you ever have trouble at friends' houses. I don't want to answer her question, so I search for a lie. I have no friends, I say. No one ever liked me. Really, I've had the same two friends, Lisa and Jack, all through middle school, one loudmouth and a silent girl who followed us around. Even now, senior year, as the thought of leaving my parents' world gives me night chills, there are only those two girls to talk to, though I am aware that when we part ways for college, it'll be permanent. We still haven't talked about your father, she says, like I don't know that already. I have two friends, but my mom's weird about my spending the night with them, at least at their houses. She thinks we're all lesbians. Are you? I shrug. Who cares? There are better things to worry about. But Lisa's face pops into my head. Specifically, Lisa's lips, cracked and puffy, like they've been injected with bee venom. Her grape chapstick smell. Lisa burrowing her head into my shoulder during the bloody parts of movies as I stomach through them so I can whisper to her the plot points she's missing. Like what? Miss Flowers asks. The future, I say. Do you worry about your future? Do you worry you'll be like your father? Every session, Miss Flowers harps on him. If I didn't know better, I'd think she had a centaur fetish. It's a thing. I've seen a few disgusting websites. Unfortunately, I have to be here, so I put up with her. Finally, after an uncomfortable silence, she folds the top over her iPad. Our time is up, Ruby. Let me sign your court papers and you can go. I hand them over. She scribbles at the bottom, writes unresponsive in the margins. Even though I was sent there because I lit a field on fire, Miss Flowers doesn't mention the blaze. Instead, she told me first session, she believes in a deeper approach, working from the past forward. I just want that shit off my record. It was Jack's idea anyhow, I say about the fire. She's the quiet one. They claim those are the ones who surprise you. Miss Flowers half smiles. My father's always been quiet too, at least in the daytime hours. I don't say this out loud.
When I come home from the therapist, my father's back from work, freshly showered, his thick black mop of hair still dripping, no shirt. He's sitting on his special-made stool in front of the TV, which is tuned to the centaur races. He isn't watching. Instead, he peers through his wire-rimmed glasses at a Discovery magazine, oblivious to the creak of the front door. From far away, his body looks impossible. The upper human part and lower horse part. The area of his belly where his black peach fuzz hide meets elastic skin. The two competing textures merge into one another there like blended marble, inseparable. My mother's always asking him to put on a shirt, but the fabric makes him feel confined. The side of my father on his haunches, the round nubs of his nipples visible, is not unsettling, and neither are the thick red lesions across his back from the work harness they strapped to him for pulling carriages and hauling construction goods, his two jobs. He's part of the Centaur Union, but they can't really do much about the physical risks of work other than give him great health insurance. The sunset creeping through the window is unsettling. I fight the urge to hide from him in my room. Mom'll be home soon, I remind myself as I walk past him into the kitchen. The crinkle of an Oreo package gets his attention. We with centaur blood have higher metabolisms, need more calories and nutrients than full-blood humans. What do you think you're doing? My father's voice booms. I bring him two cookies. The living room is bare of furniture except for his stool and the TV screen built into the wall. He extends his hands. I place one cookie in each. I was going to bring you some, I say. Didn't want to disturb your soaps. I'm not watching this. You can change it if you want. I have homework to do. Algebra. How was it? terrible. I'm awful with numbers. You know what I meant. The magazine in his lap is open to a centerfold of two pink brains side by side. In the one on the right, bursts of red like hives swarm the frontal lobe or whatever it's called. The caption at the bottom reads, day and night. My father closes the magazine and clears his throat. Fine, I guess. She seems fake. I don't think she knows what she's doing, I say. No health professional does. Remember the support group they sent me to after the incident? Full of quacks who thought they knew what it was like for us. Think the therapy might help, though? I shake my head. Because all of a sudden, if I say anything out loud, I will cry and I've already cried once for my father. I struggle a smile and disappear into my room with the rest of the Oreos. I lock the door, shut the shades, and turn my music up as loud as it will go. Once one album's over and I've started another, I hear his whinnies drifting into my room through the crack beneath the door. He doesn't speak human words, but his nays rise up at the end like questions. 
I haven't ever brought friends over because he'd embarrass me like this, but I'm not scared. I shove a blanket under the door to further block the sound. Quaking stomps rattle the floor. We've tried letting him outside, even keeping him in a stable, but he's strong and dangerous, and he only recently got his ankle cuff removed from the incident. The little boy he trampled took a year to recover. With his health insurance, he could take blockers, pills that would keep the confusion away. But he says he doesn't like the way they make him feel, dull and anxious and out of control of his own body. My mother wishes he would take them, but she isn't the type to pry. He crashes against the walls, runs through the hall, and jerks his head from side to side. I don't have to see him to know that this is what happens. The doors to the bathroom and dining room are too narrow for him to fit through. They were made that way on purpose. My room wasn't given the same consideration. They made it large in case, since there was no guarantee any child of theirs would follow in my mother's footsteps and not my father's hooves instead. The clomp of those hooves forms its own rhythm. I don't like music with a lot of bass. His hoarse screams echo in the hall. He's gotten himself stuck. I don't save him. Earplugs are a necessity in a house like ours. I block my father out. He deserves this, I think, and immediately I feel a tremble in my stomach. It's unfair to think that, but it's also unfair for a daughter to be afraid of her father. Besides, my mother will be home soon. She times her return to avoid the worst of his transformation, the angry confusion. By the time she's back, his roars will have dissolved into semblances of human language, no longer the strict language of beasts. When she comes home, she'll help ease him from the hall, angle him out, and he'll collapse onto the carpet. He'll ask again and again, Where are we? He'll ask, his speech slurred, if today is a day, if time is real, what time is it? When my mother calls him by his name, Christopher, he'll wince. It isn't important, he'll say. It's nothing. I'm nothing. My mother thinks that's the easy part. I disagree. His anger I understand. I feel the wild in my own blood, warm as hot chocolate. But I can never feel what my father experiences in the transition from beast to man. And he will never understand what it's like not to feel that. My mother, she doesn't have beast in her body. Her brain is one side of a magazine article. I'm a combination of my parents, and so they will never understand me. Not really. I lie in bed and prod my head with my fingers. I know it's silly, but I check for soft bits, for marble-sized spots of red-hot brain activity. I feel nothing but a dull ache. The doctors wanted to test my brain when I was born. 
But my parents were scared that if the docs found an equine brain, they, my parents, would never be able to treat me as human, knowing that I was just as much or more like him than her. My mother might have been scared to nurse me at night or let me stay over at friends' houses, if I had ever wanted to. If I hadn't been so homesick any time I tried that I'd wake in the night to a bellyache no amount of cookies and milk or toast could fix. My friends have begged before to be allowed at my house at night, but when I finally invite them, they hesitate. I promise them safety. My father and some of his centaur construction buddies built me a tree house when I was little, and I tell them that we can sleep there. We'll stay outside until morning. They're scared because they've only ever seen the confusion in old horror films, centaur exploitation movies, over-dramatized reality shows. It isn't even like that, I tell them. But really, in some ways, it is. Mom comes home early with a big bag of cheese chips and a block of cheddar and some queso. She shrugs. Teenagers need calcium, she says, especially you. I can tell from the way she watches me that she is nervous, even with my friends being here under her watchful eye, because she's never seen me with a boy because of the posters on my wall featuring women with pink hair and torn jeans, because I once asked her to buy me a copy of Kissing Jessica Stein, which I then hid from her, like if she never saw it again, she'd forget I'd asked for it. "'You and your friends have fun tonight,' she says. "'Now I won't be able to watch over you, not with Dad,' she purses her lips." I get the feeling that she thinks by reminding me that she won't be hovering over us, she has in effect given me permission to do whatever it is she thinks I'm going to do with Jack and Lisa. Instead, she pulls from her purse a movie rental, a comedy with a lot of sex jokes from what I've heard. You're adults, she says, handing the movie over like a holy grail. And don't worry about your father. I'll keep an eye on him. Lisa and Jack arrive in Lisa's off-white jalopy. Jack's brought her backpack, but Lisa's brought a suitcase which looks as if it might contain her whole room. I help her lug it into the house. When I've secured the bags in the safety of my closet, I hand them each a trash bag and ask them to pack a night sack for the treehouse. Lisa pouts, but Jack just drops her backpack into the trash bag and smirks. I told my parents that I was out with two other friends when the field caught fire, that we'd built a bonfire and it got out of control. I knew better than to name Jack and Lisa. If I'd done that, my parents never would have let me hang out with them. Instead, they blamed these other two girls for the hundreds of dollars in fines, the thousand in lawyers' fees. My mother thinks Lisa and Jack are a good influence, minus the lesbo stuff. For the most part, they are. I tell them to grab their night sacks. We go outside. In our overgrown acres, 
The air used to be so still you could only hear night noise, the incessant chirp of crickets, a stream in spring when it ran with water, coyotes stalking across dead leaves. Those sounds are still there, but behind them there are other less familiar sounds, sounds that I can't for the life of me associate with home. The whir of cars passing down a nearby freeway, the zip of airplanes overhead, an alien polka music drifting from the new neighbor's giant speakers. We climb the rotten ladder into the treehouse. Four thin wood walls box us in. A single window has been cut into the back wall. I open the glass to let some air in. Already sweat has pooled under my arms. For a couple of hours we play cards. War, then spades. I'm bunk at both those games, but Jack plays cards like she can see through them. What are you, fucking omniscient? Lisa says, jabbing Jack in the ribs. The look Jack gives her, her token shitty smirk, sends us all into a fit of giggles. I'll miss them in the adult world. I don't know what time it is when we finally settle down. Outside, time passes differently, and I've only been counting how many cigarette butts we've hidden in the spaces between the wood planks, so I know how many to fish out later so my father doesn't find them. We unroll the sleeping bags and slide inside them. One thing I may have inherited from my father is my night vision. Once I click off the battery-powered light, I can still see details in my friends' vertical faces, movements. I look over at Lisa, to the immediate right of me, and try to watch the sleeping bag atop her chest rise and fall with her breaths, without her noticing me noticing her. I do this until I hear the moan of the sleeping bag. Her hand emerges from it, rests on her chest. I wonder if she's going to touch me. But then she rests it on the treehouse floor on Jack's side. Jack's hand wraps around it. I feel sick. My stomach turns as Jack's fingers move up and down the skin of Lisa's hand. I want to be those hands. I roll over. I try to blink away the tears that have sprung up. I've almost entered a half-sleep of denial when Lisa speaks. I have to pee, she says. There's a big backyard, I say. No fucking way am I pissing out there. I want to go inside, she says. Jack has to pee, too. My mouth pinches up. I roll my eyes, even though they can't see it. Sure, let them go inside. Fine, I say. No problem. Follow me. We tiptoe down the ladder and through the thick green grass up to our ankles. Absorbed in his working and reading and thrashing, my father's refused to mow, and my mother has sworn out of spite to let the grass grow. At the front door I usher them inside, not knowing how long it's been night, 
I hope they'll find him throwing himself from wall to wall as sheetrock crumbles in his wake. I hope he'll charge them and they'll inhale his wild fear. Lisa will feel sorry for me. She'll realize that I'm the one who needs a hand to hold. But instead, my father's whimpers carry over from the living room where he crouches against the wall. My mother sits holding a water glass to his lips. He doesn't drink. The floor creaks beneath me. His head jerks up. Don't look at me, he slurs. Please, please. I only realize my friends have gone once I hear their footsteps on the deck. When I return to the treehouse, I can't shake the unease in my gut like I've eaten a pound of gummy worms who have come to life in my belly and are now wiggling through hours-old dinner. My friends and I try to laugh, but our laughs die before they leave our throats. How can we laugh or speak in air so dense? Graduation night means a black gown that squeezes my wide shoulders so hard the seams creak. Underneath, I wear my jeans and an old T-shirt with holes all in it. I'm at the front of the alphabet. Jack and Lisa slipped a ten-dollar bill to the boy between them so they could sit together. I don't look back at them because I know their fingers are intertwined between the seats and because we haven't talked since they spent the night. My father and mother clap from the special seat in the bleachers so loud I blush. Ruby Red! My father shouts, his voice half whinny. There is only one other centaur in the audience, as there are zero centaurs in my class, but she doesn't yell for her graduate. After clodding across the stage, we've been instructed to return to our seats. But I can't stand sitting there in that stuffy auditorium any more, so I bolt for the fire exits, setting off the alarm. Out in the parking lot, I'm confident I'll get away before my parents catch me. Running feels wild. It feels like the only sensible thing to do, like nothing ever mattered as much. My heart terrorizes my body. I let my fists pump at my sides. When I get to the bus stop, the city bus is about to pull away. The driver thinks I'm running to catch it, and he waits for me in my ridiculous gown. Well, congratulations, he says. Congrats to the graduate. He gives me three half-formed claps. I shrink into a seat and pull the gown off, wadded up beside me so no one will sit there. Exit near my house. My parents' car isn't there yet. I fish my keys from my pocket and climb into my car. I drive there without meaning to. The grass is still black. It will be black for a long while. I look out over it, breathe in the stale fire smell. I imagine I can feel heat still rising from it. Sweat beads slide down my forehead. On the day of the fire, I was holding a lighter, igniting a parliament. I flicked the ash into the grass, passed the light to Jack, who passed it to Lisa, 
who passed it back to me. I think we're going to explore those trees, Lisa said, standing with her cigarette. Coming? I stayed seated. Something about an open space soothed me, made me feel smaller. I watched my friends stumble into the brush. I flicked the lighter to relight the cigarette that had gone out between my fingers. The heat in my hand like that, it was as if I had contained it in my palm. I wanted the heat to spread, wanted to be surrounded by heat I had created. I tossed my cigarette into the grass. It hadn't rained for a month. I didn't know fire spread so fast, didn't know it consumed like it did, a whole field in one night. As I look out at the black mess I made, I hear another car on the gravel. I crouch, crawl away from the fence. If it's the farmer who owns the land, I'm screwed. My sentence extended, more of Miss Flowers. The crunch of footsteps comes nearer and nearer, and then I'm looking up into the dark eyes of my father, staring at him like a deer in headlights. It can be hard, he says, the night sky. There is something different about him, but he seems together enough, no thrashing, whimpering, no holding his head as if it's pounding under his hands. Is it safe for you to be out here? I ask. I took a blocker, he says. My daughter's graduation only happens once, you know. But you said they made you feel sick and numb. He shrugs his broad shoulders. Sacrifice. I rise and brush the burnt straw from my clothes, and we stand together in quiet until he shakes the hair from his face. Race you. He says so soft I almost miss it. Without a word, I start running. I don't check at first to see if he's behind me, and then I don't have to check because he's beside me, meeting my strides, and we gallop together for a while over blackened ground and fallen logs charred to bone ash. He passes me, and I run behind my father, watching his flanks move, so animal, and he bucks up into the air, and for once I'm jealous of him for knowing how to move like that, for knowing what that feels like. We go until we can't breathe and have to collapse in the grass, where he kicks the grass up with his back legs. The dust dances through the air. I'm tying up, he says, meaning his muscles are cramping a holdover term from back when people used to stable centaurs, just like horses. He carries me on his back. Mom sits in the car with the windows down, the radio turned to soft jams with Daphne Glow. She moves her head back and forth, eyes closed. Did you have a good run? she asks, as Dad eases himself up the ramp into the trailer in the back. We did, I say. I drive my own car home. As I drive, I think about forgiveness and how no one is perfect. And would I trade my father's imperfections for the imperfections of other fathers? 
I can't answer that question. Not right now, but it makes me feel lighter somehow, like a great harness has been lifted from my back. The morning comes without warning. Mom cooks us up a breakfast of biscuits and gravy and apple oats. Dad shakes on the patio, coming down from the inhibitor. I bring him his food on a paper plate, and he barely eats a bite. I stand and watch the sunrise in a haze of orange and cotton candy pink, pollution at its finest. When the moons disappeared, we exhale sighs of relief. My father drapes his left arm around my shoulder and squeezes. I feel a great warmth in my stomach that I can't blame on the oats. He says nothing, and I can't blame him. Nothing is the exact right thing to say. Bonnie Jo wrote us something about her story. She said, This story came to life because I wanted to write a metaphor for living with an alcoholic parent, for the duality inherent in that experience where the alcoholic has two distinct selves, one unpredictable and the other stable and, in this case, kind. I wanted to explore the fear felt when a teenager of an alcoholic first realises the hereditary nature of the condition and the blurred line between normal teenage rebellion and an inherited inability to cope with life's stresses in a healthy way. The centaur idea emerged from an article about how horses' brains work, so the first centaur image that came to me was of the father on the couch reading a Discover article about himself. The rest was formed from my own memories of being a teenager. Always nice to get the author's take on things, isn't it? If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes, Acast, or other podcatchers so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. You could also consider making a donation on the District of Wonders Patreon page so that we can keep the podcast up and running. So, far-fetched fables will be looking a little different in the coming weeks. I have to take a slight hiatus due to family commitments, so our editor, Gary Dow, and our audio engineer, Mark Zanfardino, have decided to mix things up a little bit. So you won't be hearing my dulcet tones for a couple of weeks. I will be back, but we're not quite sure exactly when. I wish you all lots of fun with the stories and the hosts that are coming up. Until then, please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators will be put to work shoveling out the centaur stables. Ew. I'm off to go and pack a very large suitcase, and I will see you all in a couple of weeks. Have a great time. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.